You are listening to the weekly sermon from the Canton United Methodist Church in Canton, South Dakota. We're a church that strives to make disciples of Jesus Christ who make a difference. To learn more, visit us at cantonsdumc.org. And now, here's Pastor Clay. Our scripture this morning comes to us from the Gospel of John in chapter 12, earlier than what we read earlier at uh, the start of worship. But this is verses 1 through 8. This is that day before we were talking about as church began this morning. Six days before the Passover, Jesus went to Bethany, to the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from, the, from death. They prepared a dinner for him there, which, Mar- with Mar- which Martha helped serve. Lazarus was one of those who were sitting at the table with Jesus. Then Mary took a whole pint of very expensive perfume made of pure nard and poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. The sweet smell of the perfume filled the whole house. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, the one who was going to betray Jesus, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 silver coins and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He carried the money bag and would help himself from it. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Keep, let her keep what she has for the day of my burial. You will always have poor people with you but you will not always have me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Holy and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you. For you, O God, are our rock, and you are our redeemer. And we give you thanks for who you are as we say together, Amen. So it is a trope or a storytelling device that exists in all kinds of stories. We find it in TV shows and movies and even books. And it is the trope of the found family. Now these found family stories have certain hallmarks, certain benchmarks of how you know you are in a found family story. First of all, very early in the story, the main character will have some kind of inciting incident where they end up on their own. Maybe they're fired from a job that they love. Maybe they end a romantic relationship. Or maybe they find themselves in a toxic situation with their actual family and they feel like their only course of action is to leave. So they end up on their own in some way. They end up in some new kind of living situation where they don't know anybody else around them. You might find this main character in a sparsely furnished apartment. You might find them living in a new city with a faster pace. Or you might find them having a roommate that they can't stand but the rent's affordable and so they just decide to deal with it for a while. But eventually, the protagonist settles into that new job. Eventually, the main character becomes a regular at a coffee shop. And eventually, that roommate and the the main character have a heart-to-heart and realize that they're not so different after all. The pivotal moment in a lot of these found family type stories, the the main, like, the, the, the telltale moment comes with holidays. The question becomes, what are they going to do on the holidays? Where will they spend the holidays? Will they go back to their family, to their actual family? Will they call their now ex and rekindle the relationship, which is bound to just go poorly? 
Or have they made friends with a group of people to the point that that is now their family? Has this ragtag group of others so formed a family unit based on their experiences and their understanding of each other rather than the blood ties of biological family? And the dramatic conclusion of these found family stories comes as the family gathers around a table for a meal. And the protagonist stands up and gives a heartfelt speech about how much they have learned on the journey. We love found family stories. And they are everywhere. And what I find so interesting is that as we think about the life of Jesus, as we think about the gospel, in a strange way, Jesus' story is a found family story. Jesus is born into the household of Mary and Joseph. And we don't believe that Joseph had survived to Jesus' adulthood, but we know that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And we know that Jesus did not just grow into the family business, which would have been expected as the oldest child. Jesus struck out on his own. Not because the situation was toxic, not because he broke up with somebody, but because he embraced his destiny as the literal son of God. When you think about it, it's found family because Jesus has this close-knit group of followers, the disciples. And although a sparsely furnished apartment would be preferable to the places where they find themselves, they have each other. At one point in the Gospels, Jesus' actual, Jesus actual family comes to him, and they want to speak to him, and Jesus doesn't have time for them. Jesus kind of blows them off, because Jesus' family has come to him to tell them how much they don't understand what he's doing and how badly they want him to stop. And Jesus' only response is what we read in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, that those who do the will of God. Not those that are biologically his family, but those that do the will of God are the ones who are his true family. So when we meet Jesus at the table this morning, we see him among his chosen family. We see him among his found family. We see him at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And in the words of Cynthia Campbell and Christine Coy Four, John's gospel gives us a glimpse of Jesus at home with some of his closest friends. And the hospitality that he receives is not from elated outsiders or skeptical religious leaders. Here he is with devoted friends. Here he is at home with people who know him and people who love him, people whose lives are so intertwined with him people who know who he really is, and they treat him like family. They treat him like family. There's a sense of peace in this gathering. There's a sense of joy in this gathering. There's a sense that despite everything else that is happening and about to happen, there's a moment of normal. As Jesus is with his friends eating a meal. Jesus has been here before. 
Much like in Luke's gospel, when we first meet Mary and Martha, Martha is busying herself with the meal, while Mary simply sits at the feet of Jesus. But unlike Luke's gospel, unlike Luke's gospel, Mary is not just sitting at the feet of Jesus, soaking up all that he is teaching. This time, Mary is giving something to Jesus. This time, Mary is serving Jesus. During their time together, Mary uses an entire pint or an entire pound of pure nard to, avoid, to anoint the feet of Jesus. And our scripture calls it pure nard because nard was expensive and nard was rare and so it was not uncommon to water it down so it could go a little bit further. But this is pure nard. This means that much to Mary. What we learn about nard is that it's expensive and rare and it smells like gladiolas and is red in color. And its uses were for medicine or for aromatic wines or for improving breath or improving the smell of clothing. But here, that pure nard is for Jesus' feet. All of it. And after Judas pushes back on her actions out of his own selfish motivations, Jesus brings the entire gathering back to reality. Because as we know, there's a lot going on around the story that's not happening at this table. And Jesus snaps them all back to reality. This calm and carefree atmosphere is broken. And I'm just guessing that everything ground to a screeching halt. Because Jesus says to the entire gathering, Judas, knock it off. Let her do what she's doing because she's preparing me for my burial. With that, there is instantly a question on everyone's mind. Well, there's instantly a couple of questions on everybody's mind. How does Jesus know this? And why is Mary doing what she's doing? Why is Mary doing what she's doing? For Judas, there is no good answer to that question. For Judas, there is nothing that will make this make sense. But Jesus pushes back on Judas and then gives his own answer. In Jesus' estimation, Mary is doing this to prepare him for burial. Jesus knows that his time on earth is coming to an end. Jesus knows that the tensions between him and the religious leaders are about to boil over. It is a few days until Passover, and Jesus knows that it will be his last Passover. The cross is in sight. In mere days, the women will bring nard and other spices to anoint his body, to prepare it for burial but for real this time. And that may have been on Mary's mind. That may have been the answer. But I think that there's a lot more to it. For Mary, this is an extravagant act of worship. 
For Mary, this is her way of thanking Jesus for all he has done and all that he means to her and to people like her. It is Jesus who raised her brother Lazarus from death, and it is Jesus who has become the friend of sinners, the friend that everybody needed. But it's also a declaration of discipleship. It's a declaration of discipleship. It's Mary's signal to Jesus and to the world that she is all in because she is giving of this extravagant gift. In mere days, Jesus will give an instruction to his disciples. Jesus will tell them to do what Mary is doing exactly at this moment. But Mary didn't need the instruction. Mary just knew what to do. Mary had an instinct. She becomes a disciple. She becomes what every commentary I read this week called a model disciple. She becomes a model disciple. She expresses what Jesus means to her with all that she had. But the question still lingers. Why did Mary do what she did? And I think the answer to that question is yes. Even Judas was right. What Mary did on that night defied explanation. It was over the top, and it was excessive, and it was wasteful. And that's okay. There is nothing that will make it make sense, because it doesn't make sense. But it did prepare Jesus for burial. It did clue the disciples in to what was about to happen next. And it was Mary's way of expressing all that Jesus meant to her and all that Jesus will go on to mean to the rest of the world. At this table, in John's gospel, at this table, in John's gospel, Jesus is with his found family, his chosen family, and he eats a meal and receives an anointing from a beloved friend as her way of expressing that she understands and accepts what will happen next. On the next day, Jesus will make his triumphant entry into Jerusalem with the shouts of Hosanna and the palm branches. And at the end of the week, at a different table, Jesus will give these instructions to his disciples as he gives them a heartfelt speech about what this journey means, not just for him and not just for them, but to the rest of the world. And what I find so interesting is that at this table, here in this place today, we gather with our found family. And for some of us, that's actual family. Those two things can be one and the same, and thanks be to God. But we gather with our found family as well. We gather with beloved friends and holy strangers, and it's all for the purpose of being strengthened and nourished. To prepare ourselves, to prepare our bodies, our minds, and our spirits to walk once again through this week 
of Holy Week. But we also gather at this table in the shadow of what Mary has done. We gather in the shadow of Mary's gracious action. And we ask ourselves, how can we show love and care in the same way that Mary did? If Jesus is a part of our found family, we have a responsibility to show it. But how can we? If Mary is a model disciple, how can we go forth and model that? I don't have the answers for you. That's what you're going to need to pray about this week. But let this time and let this holy meal be a foundation for our answer and may our lives reflect just how much Jesus means to us. Would you pray with me? Holy Jesus, we give you thanks for your life. We give you thanks for the people you touched and the difference you made and the lives that you have changed. And we give you thanks that one of those lives that has been changed is ours. As we prepare to walk through this week, be with us. Guide us and guard us from pushing it aside because the story is overwhelming and it's hard and it's scary. But it's also exhilarating to know that your love is that great. Inspire us to show love, to model service, and to walk in your way. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from the Canton United Methodist Church. Join us in person or online at 10 o'clock every Sunday morning for worship. And now go in peace and serve the Lord. I want to encourage you after the message to head over to our YouTube channel and click the subscribe button. Over on YouTube, you will find videos of our entire worship service, a video cast of our weekly Cut for Time conversation with Pastor Clay and Eric, songs from our praise band One Way Up, and a bunch of other great things as well. Just search for Canton United Methodist Church. It would mean a lot to have you subscribe.